0: Four, three, two, one. Hello everybody. It is time to introduce the lady of yesterday USA. Hello, Patricia.
1: Hello, Walden. He's in California and I'm not. That's true. That's true. I am here in Florida. We have two guests. We do? Yes, we do, and I'm just so excited about it. For our listeners, this is not our regular Saturday night show. We are recording this interview, so we cannot take calls. We cannot take questions. But after you listen to this interview, if you want to send me questions, I will pass, it, pass them on to the guys. We're talking with the co-founders of the National Lum and Abner Society, Tim Hollis and Donnie Pitchford and you will never find anyone more dedicated to Lum and Abner and preserving these characters and history than Donnie and Tim. Um, Sam Brown was also a member of the team, but he couldn't be with us this time through. So we've got two people on the other end, and because they do Lum and Abner, I think they're going to fill up all the time in just no problem. Hi, guys, and welcome.
2: Hello. Huh? Hello, oh, you happy people.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to help me with who's doing what here.
2: <laughs> oh, you mean you mean on your board you can't see which voice is coming over which line? <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm the, I'm on Skype, so. Oh, but, I see. but I'm, I, I may sound the same to Patricia though than uh I, but Tim's on on a telephone line, so yeah. I can tell the okay. difference.
1: All right, He's, if Patricia's can, in Florida.
2: She's closer to me than than to any
3: office. <laughs> yeah. And,
1: and you are you're in Alabama, is that correct? Birmingham,
3: Alabama, yeah.
1: Birmingham. And Donna, you're in Texas?
3: Right, uh, Carthage, Texas.
1: Carthage, Texas. And Walden is in California. Coach Mesa, California. We we have the country covered here.
4: That's
1: true. Okay, I just want to do a quick recap on Lum and Abner because occasionally we have new listeners who have not gone through the list of fabulous old-time radio shows. Lum and Abner is an old-time radio show that was created by Chester Locke, who played Lum Edwards, or Edders, as they say on the show, and Norris Goff, who played Abner Peabody. It was first aired in 1931, and it absolutely thrived right through 1954. Both Goff and Locke made seven movies in addition to the radio shows, and they were also in character. And now the entire population of Pine Ridge, where Loman Abner lives, is being resurrected in both audio and comics. Donnie is the cartoonist who creates Lemon Abner, and Donnie and Tim are the voices of many, if not most, of the Lemon Abner characters in the audio version. Now I have used up all of our interview time haven't
2: I <laughs> I was going to tell you, uh, so good night, and we'll see you later, folks. <laughs> and,
1: and we'll see you later. I mean, I, I kept paring this down and paring this down, and I thought, you know, how am I going to do this? So I just did it. So, Tim, can we start with you about the characters you play on the audio version of the comic strip that Donnie creates?
2: Well, of course, I don't ordinarily do the audio versions here lately we've had a few that we uh while we were together in Mena we recorded them that way and then oh a couple of years ago Sam and I happened to be visiting uh Donnie at the same time and we recorded some scripts there but generally uh Uncle Donnie does all of the voices himself for his audio uh it's just it happens that the ones that are running right now I think I was doing all of the Chet Law characters and he was doing all of the Norris Goff characters.
3: Pretty much with the exception of Dick Huddleston. And, well, that's uh, right. Sam, Sam right. always
2: plays Dick Huddleston because right. he sounds just like him.
3: Yeah, he was the closest <laughs> voice to that. And then and, and he's traditionally been. Uh, that all actually started with the uh, National Lum and Abner Society conventions when we would mm-hmm. uh, get together. And we never, you remember, we never could get a guest. All these old time radio guests, and we would say, Well, would any of you like to play the parts of Lum and Abner? And they were, Oh, no, 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 I can't. No, I'd better not do that. Uh, And and we were always, Well, out of desperation, well, we'll try to do them. But uh, we really, the only reason we did them was to feature whoever our guest star happened to be. So, uh, you know, we just sort of fell into it.
1: What were their misgivings? And I'm glad they had them because you're all so fabulous in the voices. I mean, my gosh, I, I listened to, who does Dick Huddleston? Sam Brown. It is Sam. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I listened to the one that's up there right now, and I listen to them periodically, and it, it's just great fun to see the characters because, I mean, we'll talk about the cartooning in a minute.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: but Dick Huddleston, I thought, where did they get this recording of Dick? I mean, the rest <laughs> of them are, are just, Fabulous. And then Dick comes in, whoa. <laughs> really? I mean that's, that's Dick Huddleston there.
2: Well so, of course we you know, had the advantage too in the in the very last programs that Lum and Abner did in the in the fifties, I guess by that time the budget had shrunk to the point that they they didn't want to pay a network announcer anymore, so Tuffy would play Dick Huddleston and serve as the announcer on the program. So we started doing that. Uh, we have we have had announcers uh, at the conventions, but when we when we didn't do that, we just sort of went back to what they did in the fifties and let Dick Huddleston or Sam be the announcer for. Them. Right. So that worked out well.
3: Yeah, we actually had. Have,
1: uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Excuse me for interrupting. I should have told our gang out there that they can see the current comic strip all the time and hear the audio version of the comic strip at your website, which is?
3: It's uh, lum And, Abner and uh, you, uh, when you get to that page, you have a choice between the National Lum and Abner Society uh, pages or the comic strip pages. So it's just lumandabnersociety.org.
1: And that is super. Donnie, how many newspapers are now carrying the cartoon strip?
3: Not enough.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let me rephrase that. <laughs> we'll do this twice. How many are, how many would you like?
3: I'd like about a thousand, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, it's, I was going uh, to say, so would the guy who does Popeye,
1: <laughs> but yeah.
3: we
2: can't help him either. <laughs> yeah.
3: <clears throat> well, Lemon Abner is not syndicated by a national syndicate. Um, it's it's in the Mina Star. It's in the Amity Standard. It's in a monthly uh, national uh, n- newspaper or tabloid-style magazine called Today's Grocer. Uh, it's online in the, on at gocomics.com. You can also see it at gocomics.com and just type in, uh, just do a search for Lum and Abner, and it will pop up. And it's available through the old-time, uh, what is that? It's a digital newsletter, um, Old Radio Times. I, I believe that's right. Or
2: is it OTR Digest? I don't remember. No, no, <laughs>
3: it's it's. I think it's Old Radio Times. If I'm saying that wrong, I apologize. It's the Old Time Radio Researchers Group publication.
1: Um, okay, okay.
3: If I say that, if I have the title wrong, I'm, I apologize.
1: But. They go they go by O T R R. So yes. if you can't find anything else, just look for O T R R and newsletter, and something in your search engine should pop up. Right, I and guess. it's
3: it, they they carry it there as well, and. Uh,
1: oh, that's, that's great. Um, I just want to remind people we're talking with Tim Hollis and Donnie Pitchford. They are co-founders of the National Lumen Abner Society. Donnie is creator of the Lumen Abner comic strip, and both Tim and Donnie do the voices of the characters. Johnny more than Tim according to Tim. But every yeah. time we talk Tim, him, you messed up to a handful of them. Well,
0: well another thing we need to make that Tim was really the uh, the guy who wrote most of the Eleven Avenue newsletter for all the years too, so
2: you know Oh I right. did those articles for years and years and years. <laughs> right. What was it twenty was it was it Twenty-three, um, 23 years we'd published
3: I think so because the first issue was July August 1984 and the last one wasn't it the um, I think it was
2: August 2007
0: August
3: 07 I believe was the final issue yeah, right I
0: think so <laughs> And Tim has also written several books how many
2: books now Tim Uh I am up to 25 of them on the market right now And um of course there are more in the works all the time <laughs> so that was that was one reason besides the fact that a lot of not a lot of, most of OTR fandom had moved to the Internet by 2007, but I was just so occupied with my book deadlines that I didn't have time to continue a, a printed publication like that.
1: What are we going to look at if we Google your name and say books? What's going to come up?
2: Well, I think the most, the most recent one that came out is one called Toons in Toyland. It's the uh, the history of cartoon character merchandise, and uh, you know all of the, uh, the the records and the little golden books and the sure. uh, you know roadside attractions like the Jellystone Park campgrounds and things like that. That is uh, that one and uh, a very tiny book about miniature golf are the uh, those are the two most recent ones I have. out. Oh,
0: oh, I remember you, Frank, and I talked to you about your uh, your book about uh, comedy. Bay from, from from the southern, yeah, you know, yeah, of the country.
2: Well that's right. You mean the uh rural comedy book right? Right. that one was uh, Ain't That a Knee Slapper. Yep. That one came that's out a right. few years ago. Yeah. If a person Googles my name, I think they'll be able to tell which Tim Hollis is or me. Uh there are a few there are a few impersonators out there. <laughs> <laughs> but um and every every now and then, there are ones that you really don't want to be confused with. But others seem to be fine fellows.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. when you have a name like Google Google and it comes yeah. up more than once, you know that there's a problem out there. <laughs> That's
2: right. <laughs> the
1: Tim Hollis, writer, books, and they're they seem to concentrate on the entertainment industry and they
2: do or i, I like to call them pop culture history because they yeah, cover yeah, yeah. That's it. all kinds of different topics but uh... i think I, it's not very difficult to tell which ones are mine
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's funny but you mentioned the newsletter a minute ago and i did pull up the annotated version of the july august 1984 <laughs> issue uh-oh. And it is, well, it's great fun to look at, and I'm reading the annotations as well, and it, it's, it's just, you know, you, you of course, because you're familiar with what was there. Yeah, that and one, I think that
2: together. was the one that was done on a, uh, was done on a typewriter, and the, the uh-huh. headlines were made by cutting letters out like I was doing a ransom note, and uh-huh. physically taping them together to make words. <laughs> I think um,
1: I, there, there are also a couple of staple marks here, which. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just well, you that. see, when we did the very it.
2: that very first issue, we did not have professionally printed because number one, there was no money to do that, and secondly, yeah. we had no idea whether we were going to have ten members or or five hundred. <laughs> so so we just you sort of uh, yeah, we just so the first issue was just done on a photocopier. And then the the second issue, we had professionally printed, but we ran out of the printed versions, and so I guess probably about half the run of that one was on a photocopier. But after that, uh, they were professionally printed from that point on.
1: How how were they distributed?
2: Oh, through the mail. People would... uh, Back in those days, people would pay dues. I think the very first year, we had some ridiculous amount, like a dollar and a half. People had to pay <laughs> for a year's subscription. <laughs> and uh, we uh, we saw after the first year that that wasn't going to cut it, friends. So uh, well, we rem- increased, as, as postage increased over the years.
3: If you remember, we were uh, we ended up having to split the uh, the printing bill, Sam for and Tim and I. We had to pay half of it.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was, um, but we we were so determined, uh, you know, Catlock Jr. had said, you can do this as long as no one's making a profit off of it. <laughs> so we were so determined to not make a profit off of it that that's where that uh, fifty came from. We figured that was what the postage was going to cost yeah. to mail six issues over a year. But, uh, and of course we... Didn't take into consideration the fact that we would eventually have to have it printed, because we, as I said, we didn't know whether we were going to right. or not. I
0: mean, uh, you guys wound up with what, at least two hundred paying members, right? If I recall, right? Well, we
3: had uh, closer to a thousand, didn't we, or yeah, more? Yeah, we
2: had we we wow. had close to a thousand at one point, right. and um, and even more than that, if you count the people who had been members and dropped out, you yeah. know, the people right. that we actually reached was incredible. But as I said, it was it was declining by 2007 because it was all everything was moving to the internet rather than a printed publication you get through the yeah. mail. Well, Relevant.
1: I think this is positively charming to look at this, and the annotations are fun because you're mentioning things that I just would have skipped right over. <laughs> um, knowing that you ran these off on copiers, that what you identify as the staple marks on the left side of the title page, I would have just gone right past them (laughs) you guys
2: are brutal i think the reason the reason that donnie did the annotated version that was just a nice way of saying look folks we didn't know what we were doing this first time (laughs) (laughs) and i'm going to explain why (laughs) because we really did we We made some we made some factual errors and things like that because we just we didn't we didn't really have much of a source to go by, and some of the sources, the, the books on old-time radio right. had been incorrect, sure. and uh, it just took a lot of first-hand right. research to straighten all of that out over the years.
3: Well, I think a lot of people don't realize that our organization actually brought together the uh, the bulk of the knowledge on Lum and Abner that, at that time, in 1984, it just hadn't been done. The research hadn't been done, and uh, we hadn't... Uh, I, of course, I know the other. There were other organizations like SpurdVac and and uh, Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters, and so many others that had done a lot, but we were bringing it together and focusing on Lemon and Abner. And, yeah, they uh, had.
2: You know, obviously, they were dealing with a lot of different radio series at one time. And, right. And there weren't that many books out. There was uh, there was Dunning's Tune In Yesterday, which had its own share of errors in there. You know, it's funny. In when I read that book, he um, Dunning was the one who claimed. That Abner was named after someone that that Tuffy Goff knew, and to this day, I don't think we've ever run into any reference of anyone around Mina or mm. Pine Ridge who was named Abner.
4: Mm. <laughs>
2: but, mm. So I'm not sure where Dunning got that information way back yeah. then, but it never was corroborated anywhere.
1: Mm. Oh my Um We we talked with Kathy, and I want to pronounce her name correctly. Does she pronounce it Stucky?
2: Stucker, Stucker, with Stucker. an R. Stuckey's is the, the place you stop to get the con here. logs when you're on the interstate.
1: Yeah. By the way, okay. she was. That's uh, right. <coughs> <laughs> I I was about to embarrass myself and own up to it.
3: We <laughs> featured her. Uh, she was featured in one of the recent comic strips, by the way, and yeah. and provided and her voice.
1: One, yeah, it's the one that's up on the site right now.
3: Ah. Yeah, that wasn't that wasn't one of us doing that voice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't think so.
3: <laughs> good, <laughs> good. But well, by the time <laughs> this airs, yeah, by the time this airs, it won't be. This week's, but it was, yeah. uh, you well, may want to, we may want to tell folks to look. Uh, we did something unusual this time. We, uh, actually had the cartoon or the comic strip Lum and Abner superimposed over photographs of Mina and the Lum and Abner Festival. So that's, that's why we had, uh, Kathy Stucker in there. And, uh, you may want to look at that on the site. If, if it's gone by the time this airs, it will be, uh, In the archives under the heading of, uh, I think I call it off to the festival, I think. So it'll still be there somewhere.
1: Do you have archived um, panels, archived comic strips that go back a ways?
3: Uh, They go back about two years uh, I was required uh, to remove them when the the first two books were published. There's a Lum and Abner Year One, Lum and Abner Year Two uh, uh-huh. set set of uh, printed book collections. But I think the um, I think we we go all the way back to uh, the summer of th- of thirteen, I th- I think. But so that's still in, available. Am
1: I hearing you correctly that if people go to the site, they cannot access this two-year period?
3: They can access it, yes. Are they you, are you talking about the first? I'm sorry, are you talking about the first two years? Yes. Uh, well, they can access it if they buy my books.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> they have to so buy the books better to better read better those early ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. That, that's and where I'm those.
2: I'm not are the at. only one doing books around
1: here, you know. Apparently, I have to. I have to get off my my little duff here and get going the, uh,
2: we au- we authors are notoriously mercenary.
1: <laughs> um, we, we like to are, eat <laughs> we, we authors are notoriously starving artists that's
4: right <laughs> yeah
1: i am i am a starving artist ah. I am also a writer Ah. Um, let's, let's say oh, my okay, sympathies I, I, yeah <laughs> thank you you know oh, I, your it,
2: little heart oh
1: thank you. <laughs> When when you pay the electric bill after having robbed the piggy bank, you know you're
2: mm-hmm.
1: in trouble. Um, <laughs> tell me about from both of you. I want to know how you cultivated the voices that you can do with these characters in the audios.
2: Hmm. <laughs> well, is, is neither that, neither is? one of us thinks that we duplicate them very well, but we've just we've sort of developed our own versions of the voices, I guess you can say, and uh, there have been, there have been people over the years who probably sounded less like them than we did. (laughs) When you, when you consider that in the early sixties, there was a Lum and Abner TV pilot, and uh, Lum was played by, uh, I mean, both parts were played by famous actors. Lum was played by Arthur Honeycutt, and Abner was played by Edgar Buchanan, who most people know as Uncle Joe on Petticoat Junction.
4: Uh-huh. And
2: even though we've never seen a print of that pilot, we have to think that our versions probably sound more <laughs> like Lum and Abner than Honeycutt and Buchanan did.
3: <laughs> well, and then I... we, well, one thing that we, you know, we know we've got the advantage of. Lum and Abner having their favorite expressions. So if if, if one of us says, I, grannies, they automatically assume it's Lum. If somebody says, I, doggies, they assume yeah. well, he must be Abner. When Sam says, I, jacks, we know it's supposed to be Dick Huddleston. Yeah. Uh, so, you the, know. Um,
2: Lum, Lum we've, we found out, no, and we have switched parts from time to time, because if we do, we have done at the conventions a few routines where we were actually in makeup and costume, and when we do that we have to swap parts because Donnie's tall and I'm a little shrimp and you know, it wouldn't look right for a costumed Abner to be a foot taller than Lum is. So uh-huh. so when we have done the parts in makeup we've switched and, and uh Donnie has done Lum and I've done Abner. Of course when we're in makeup we can't do the other characters. No. So uh you know, that's been that's been something we've done sparingly, I guess. But uh
1: well, you've uh, got an entire community in Pine Ridge who shows up on the show periodically. I don't Have hmm. we ever heard Elizabeth?
2: Um, she was in one or two programs, uh, but mostly they just kept her as a character who would be talked about, you know, right. and not necessarily appear in person.
1: Yes, yes, she was the one who was going to show up when poor... Abner was uh, tied up in splints <laughs> pretending he had gotten run over by a car. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, Lizb- Elizabeth was in the focus, but she never showed up. We're talking yeah. with Tim Hollis and Donnie Pitchford. They are co founders of the National Lumen Abner Society. Donnie is the creator of the Lumen Abner comic strip. He does the voice of the characters, and Tim jumps in sometimes as well. They're, everything is up on lumandabnersociety.org O-R-G, um, not the other one. I won't even mention a lot of people going to the wrong <laughs> site up there. So, um, Donnie, tell me the origin of the comic strip, where you cultivated or developed the artistic abilities to put these characters in print and do it extraordinarily like the actual characters when they got dressed up.
3: Well, thank you. Um, Actually, that, since I was about age five, I had a desire to be a cartoonist and uh, I'll go ahead and tell you that was in 1963, so you do the math and I'm 22 years old. Mm -hmm. So, we... uh, No, actually, I really did. I wanted to do that. Yeah, uh, at least, yeah, almost twice. But uh, I wanted to do that growing up. You know, that was all I wanted to do. And then I got sidetracked and uh, got into a teaching career and found that that kept me too busy. But um, I was able to do some art along the way with the uh, National Lemon Abner Society. There was usually something that needed illustrating. And when I finally got out of the teaching profession, I decided it's time for me to to delve into this, this art career that I've put off for so many years. And uh, it was a little over four years ago, I think it was in March or April 2011, that I uh, had been interviewed <clears throat> about Lum and Abner by a website uh, called First Arkansas News. And the more this guy and I spoke, we were both Lum and Abner fans, and finally one day I just said, hey, he said, have you ever considered a comic strip on your website? You're, you know, you're developing an online newspaper. Have you thought about a comic section? He got interested, and uh, since we had spoken for so many years with uh, Chesterlock Jr., I approached him for permission, and uh, he said, well, let me see what you have in mind so i came up with a set of samples and some model sheets and so forth and uh he objected to a few things of course i mean you know that was i was depicting his father and uh he said if you'll change this a little bit or modify this and i i got the look to what he approved and uh he said okay go for it and that's how we started it was started online with first arkansas news and then the uh the Mina Star picked it up and uh, we've had a few other papers through the years that just didn't stay with it, but uh and it's run uh we we've started the fifth year at the beginning of June started the fifth year, but that's basically Hasn't how it got started.
4: Long? Oh my um,
3: gosh. Yeah, four complete years and uh we're wow. in the second month of the fifth year. Oh
1: my but, goodness.
3: Oh actually, my um goodness. I I usually John and Larry say they don't remember this that well, but I think it was either John or Larry uh, or someone on Yesterday USA that made the comment that, oh, well, it's nice that you're doing a uh, comic strip, but uh, those of us uh, who are blind, we love old-time radio, but we can't read your comic strip. And that's what led to the idea for the audio version. You know, I said, well, we need to do something about that. And uh, that's how we uh, I got the idea and got... Uh, the OK to produce an audio version each week, and I thought, well, you know, the first thought was just describing the strip, and I thought, well, why don't we do it like a little miniature radio show? And uh, that's how that. And of got course, started. I might
2: mention too that, um, of course, John and Larry, uh, at least once a year, had been playing the audio from the conventions uh, mm-hmm. over over their right. radio program. So I think that that probably. That probably entered into the thinking uh as well was that they were they were sort of basing it on what we had been doing all along
3: yeah I think you're right um now, yeah because Donna,
1: you're, you're creating an audio and a visual right how how challenging is it to create a visual that has to be able to translate and make sense in an audio
3: and sometimes I don't think it does <laughs> I've had uh, there I, are I've had, some where you've
2: had sight gags that, of course, had to be yeah. described in the audio yeah. version.
3: <laughs> so it, it slows it down. It, it loses some punch. But um, sometimes if you do it right, I know I did the um, one that was fun was actually not uh, one of my scripts, but it was the uh, 1936 radio scripts, which unfortunately don't exist as recordings. But the, the uh, story where Lum decides to become a boxer to try to win some money so they can get out of debt. And that one was a lot of fun to do. Uh, in fact, I had so much fun with that one that I, I actually took the the climactic um, fight scene, which was probably one script, one day, mm. and uh, and split it into about three weeks. And I had so much fun with it, I just I just did the actual script. And so the audio version was about four times longer than the action in the Sunday strip because I didn't want to break it down. I thought, let's see if we can re you know try to recreate. And I had the uh, I had the sound of uh, well, Abner was reporting it over the party line is the way they Mm -hmm. did that script. So I I tried to make it sound like it was coming over the phone uh, and have the sound effect of the the people cheering and the 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 bell ringing and Lum getting knocked down and all that sort of thing. So that was one (laughs) where the the sight gags worked because it was based on the radio script.
2: I think that years and years, and then and then some more years back, when we first started doing the script reprint books, I think we had this crazy idea about putting out audio versions of them because right. we were doing the audio journals yeah. at the same time. But somehow or other, that just seemed like a project that was so huge that right. we just we kind of cowered away from doing that. Yeah,
3: <laughs> well, you yeah, know, we would have had to have met for you know, a period of, of weeks and just, yeah nothing. Before, it, would, it would have been, it would have been literally like broadcasting the show sure, uh, the way Chet and Tuffy did. <laughs> Although we did, we came close to that in the, in what was it? March of, uh, of 2013 when you and Sam and I oh, when did. When
2: we were this, in Texas. Yeah. 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 Oh, was that
3: like 14, was that 14 weeks we did? Was it that many scripts? It, it was 13 be. or 14.
2: And then was we did, uh, what was it about? Was it, Eight or nine or ten we did in Mina this year.
3: Yeah, yeah. You and Sam did the, the uh the the ones that led up to it. Uh Sam and Tim That's actually right. did their yeah. lines at home and uh I think Tim drop boxed them and Sam mailed his on a, a cassette tape yeah. so we could have the consistent cast for the, the festival series. But uh and then I
2: guess that uh you're supposed to be coming here to visit in Alabama in September. I guess you and I will record some more then. I don't know.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's an idea. If I we'll yeah, have to if work I,
2: around know. Sam not being here, but, if I uh, get
3: some, if I can get enough scripts together, we could do that. You're right. Yep. Uh, yep. And and uh, perhaps Sam, who unfortunately can't be with us, Sam had some some family uh, situations. There there was a death of a very close family friend. And, oh, what a shame. Yeah, his brother uh, is in town, and uh, they. Uh, he he's just covered up this week. He sends his apologies for not being with us tonight. He said too much,
1: he's, no, it it happens, and yeah. I knew that it was a problem. As soon as you said he can't be with us, right. I knew it was a problem. And certainly, we're so flexible. If he wanted to participate, sure, and put it off to a different time, that would have been fine. I'm just delighted that we had the two of you with us. Right. We're talking with. Donnie Pitchford and Tim Hollis, co-founders of the National Lum and Adner Society. What was the year you invented the society?
3: Actually, Tim was the guy that talked us into... Stend- I'm the one... I was the one that said, ah, oh, that'll never work. Yeah. Tim's the guy that... Why don't you explain that, Tim?
2: Well, the idea, I would say, uh, came about in 1983. That was... Donnie and Sam had met... uh through correspondence and then briefly in person the year before uh when in Pine Ridge, they used to have a and Abner festival that was quite separate from the one in Mina. theirs would would just be on one day a year, but um so they had actually met in eighty two in eight in the spring of nineteen eighty three uh my mom and dad and I had gone to Pine Ridge to visit during my spring break from college, and when I left there. Uh, I just, of course, I thought I was the only Lumen Abner fan in the world, and <laughs> so with Kathy Stucker, I just left my name and address and phone number, and and told her that if she ever ran into anyone else who wanted to correspond, to have them get in touch with me. And a couple of months later, I heard from Sam, and he told me about this this other college student in Texas. Who was kind of—it's kind of funny that Donnie's five years older than I am, but yet we were both in college at the same time. <laughs> oh, anyway. I'm kind <laughs> <laughs> well, of stupid.
1: That's because he was still you in is... the
2: third reader. <laughs> but anyway, I'm just going to
1: ask which one of you is Frederick,
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Depends small. on which one but, has. Um, yeah,
3: <laughs> it depends <laughs> on who needs the IQ at the time. I think. Yeah, <laughs> Cat
2: Catlock used to say he came from a town that was so small they didn't have a village idiot. They had to take turns, so that's <laughs> how we do it. But anyway, anyway, when uh, after I heard from Sam and it turned out that there was there were at least three people who were interested in Lum and Abner, uh, I sort of got the idea that maybe if there were three, that there would be more than that, and so. The uh, the idea of the society sort of cooked around for a year until the summer of 1984 when we finally got Kit Jr.'s permission and put out the first journal, as you know, in August of that year. But um, so it was the, the society itself had about a a, a year long gestation period, I guess you'd say.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: So were you guys and shocked it, after the year number one? How many people joined?
2: Oh yes. I mean it was yeah. it was amazing. Like it was that was part of that not knowing that we were ever going to have to have professional printing. We had no idea mm. how many people we were going to get.
3: And it's like we have to remind people there was nothing there was no internet no. in <laughs> those days. You know, that's that's what people don't they they don't understand, you know, that, that we were reaching people almost in you know, with the technology that Lum and Abner had in the '30s, I mean, we didn't. Yeah, yeah. It, it was because of well, uh, radio announcers. Um,
2: yeah, I think a lot of the publicity we got, especially in the early days, was from the stations that were playing yeah. the, the reruns of the program. Yeah. But um, and and then other radio organizations like right. Spurred Vac were big backers. Um, uh, Bob Lines uh, and Barbara Watkins yes. when they had their radio program, I think they. They plugged it practically every week, and uh, sometimes I really don't know where the members came from. <laughs> they would just I come think, out of the woodwork.
3: <laughs> I, I think it was largely the you know the the OTR community that existed at the time, and and yeah. uh, word mouth, and uh, then we had we started meeting, uh, getting to know people like Roswell Rogers and uh, mm-hmm. Jerry Hausner, and and uh, a lot of the the uh, the actors and people that were involved with not just not just the radio, but Lum and Abner specifically, and they started spreading the word.
2: Yeah, they, they were very instrumental in getting the, uh, the the veteran actors on our side because after, I, I've forgotten which guest, at, at, at what point in the convention's history it was, but it it got to the point that if we had Jerry Hausner, Les Tremaine, Wendell Niles, any of those people, they would come and be with us in Mina, and then they would go home And they would tell such glowing stories about it at the Pacific Pioneer broadcasters' meetings and so forth that when we would contact uh, someone, I, I don't even remember who it was, whether it was Barbara Fuller, Willard Waterman, one of these people, but I would contact someone and say, "You know we wondered if you'd like to be our guest. I'd say, "Well, it's about time. we wondered when you were going to ask me <laughs> <laughs> you know people these people out there the the old timers in Hollywood, they were just all waiting to be asked me guests, <laughs> it, it's amazing. just too bad they all they all got old and died before we had a chance to have all of them yeah. that would have liked to yeah. have been there. I'm sure
3: well, we try, yeah, we certainly yeah, tried. We, we did the best we could I think one thing. One thing that appealed to them is the fact that, uh, of course, a lot of we didn't have the budget to have a huge convention. Ours was uh, smaller. And as as a result, the guests that we would have, I think uh, we gave them our full attention. Yeah, and it yeah. uh, was—I think it was—it was just the intimacy of uh, the smaller groups. We might have what would you say fifty people in, in many of our audiences. Yeah,
2: well, sometimes it, we had bigger groups than that, but it still was sure, sure. pretty intimate. And yeah, uh, yeah, you know, everyone was very friendly to them and sure. and treated them like the uh, like the celebrities they really were. Uh, I thought one of the funniest remarks. Was um, the year that uh, Dick Beals was with us? With mm-hmm. there were a few other guests that night, and the first night of the convention, we had done our tribute to Sam Edwards, who was who was one of the guests that year, and the next morning we were all having breakfast there at the uh, at the motel in Mina, and just out of the blue, <laughs> Dick Beals said, uh, you know, I hope you people realize that what you're doing here is impossible. (laughs) (laughs) Donnie and I looked at each other, and we said, well, don't tell us that. We won't be able to do it anymore.
3: (laughs) Now he tells us.
2: (laughs) Dick Beals, he he went on, and he said, uh, you know, he said, I've been a guest at conventions that were – run by staffs of 25 or 30 people and they couldn't do what you three people did in that room last night. He was just, he was just, uh, you know, carried away by everything we were doing. And that was generally the way the guest felt about it. And, uh,
3: we did It was so
2: great. We loved. Yeah. We loved making them feel so good. Obviously,
3: we didn't know any different. You know, we thought. We thought. You know, we're not the big conventions. We better do our very best to impress these people and show them what you know how much we appreciate them. And I think that because we were so small, I think. I think that, that just added to it, and. Yeah. Uh, and, and it and, was like uh, a
2: vacation to them because yeah, we didn't. And, we didn't work them to death and all of that. Yeah. they just mostly had to enjoy themselves.
3: And of course, yeah. we're not. Let me make make this plain we're not being critical of any other conventions don't oh, get us of course the wrong not. Way. we're just just, <laughs> just no. explaining you know we're explaining the differences in our approach and and because yeah. we didn't we didn't have 30 guests we had uh sometimes just one sometimes two three mm-hmm. I think you know uh we might how have, I think, have uh, pardon me
1: how many attended the convention this year um
3: well, you know that that's a, it's hard I don't to know say
2: that we ever got an account
3: I think it was four uh, people no.
2: <laughs> no it's, uh, well, see, but, t- see, I took my shoes off and got up to twenty. Yeah.
3: <laughs> this year was different. But that was because... on one foot,
2: of course. But yeah. anyway, yeah,
3: exactly. Now you see, our actual final official National Lumb and Abner Society convention was ten years ago.
4: Yeah.
3: And um, the reason we stopped was similar to the reason that we had to stop the newsletter. Uh, you know, we, we were all just so busy. And uh, sadly, we were losing all of the people that had anything to do with Lum and Abner. And a lot of the people from old-time radio, as, as you folks know, we're, we're losing them. And it's very sad. But um, we, uh, I don't know, did we call this one a convention or were we? No, I don't think
2: we did. We were just sort of there <laughs> was... as part of Mina's Lum and Abner Festival. Exactly. And, uh, and any time it... we do it in the future, it'll be the same thing. We don't really call them conventions
3: anymore. I guess they're more. Sam calls them reunions, which I think yeah, is a good.
2: Yeah, I think that's okay. a good term for them too.
3: But um, we, um, yeah, the, Mina has their Lum and Abner Festival uh, the first w- uh, weekend in June every year.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah,
3: And yeah. Uh, it it was kind of a two part thing. I was actually invited to to come and, and represent my work in the comic strip, and and do a, a sketching or a drawing program as part of their activities in the park, and then we planned our program. At the Washita uh, uh, Little Theater, and so we had a program, a separate program there, and cross promoted. And uh, but we, like we did in the old days, we had uh, had a couple of guests, and I, mm-hmm. I think I think they're both going to be on this program if I'm not mistaken. And so, in that respect, it was a lot like our earlier programs. So uh,
2: it was, and of course, we don't want people to get the impression we we're not in mina every year in fact we don't know when the next year we'll be back there <laughs> they may they may invite donny back to do uh, the the cartooning or they may invite him back so they can stone him to death or something you know be, yeah. but uh uh but we don't uh, at this point we don't have any prospects for for going back there i'm sure we will someday right but so,
3: well, I know, don't know that we have the budget anymore. <laughs>
2: yeah, well, that's true, too. It's probably a good thing that we used up the last two guests that we intended to
1: have. <laughs> so how does this come about, then? If you guys aren't there and you are the titular head of this entire... Um, well,
3: this well, actually, we're, we're not anymore. <laughs> <out of time. laughs> Mina, uh, The city of Mena uh, conducts their uh, conducts the Lum and Abner Festival and have for many, many years uh, our part was as the National Lumb and Abner Society, and there were some years that uh, we were there on a completely different weekend. So,
2: well, in fact, we were uh, always we we never yeah. had a convention at the same time the Mina well, Festival was going on.
3: I think there was only there were only a couple of times that remember when they were changing their dates around something. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's right.
3: Yeah, there was that was years ago, but uh, um, for the most part, we we have not been at the same weekend because of the timing. Because uh, mm-hmm. we couldn't get the guests at the same time they had their festival, I think was the situation, and I was still yeah. working. As well,
2: yeah, so that's could right.
1: You, could, would you <clears throat> explain why Mina is the location and how close it is to Pine Ridge, where the Jotem Down store is?
3: Well, that's where uh, Chatlock and Tuffy Goff grew up and met. Mm-hmm. Was was in Mina.
2: Yeah, they and, weren't born there, but they but they yeah. spent their childhoods there. Right, mm-hmm.
3: right. And um, that's where Norris Goff's father ran the Goff Wholesale House, which serviced Dick Huddleston's store out in Waters, Arkansas. And what is it, Tim? Eighteen, twenty miles from Yeah, Pine- yeah.
2: It uh, it was probably further in those days when it was dirt roads, but it's about right. eighteen miles, I think. Right. Right. But um, um, yeah, yeah, they just uh, so really that was the that was the connection between Mina and. And Waters was just the fact that that uh, Locke and Goff knew Dick Huddleston from right. from going on their father's business interests out there. Right. Mm-hmm.
3: And according to Kathy Stucker, um, Chet and Tuffy both worked for their fathers at different times, and uh, Chet would often, you know, they would actually go there to the store, and so they knew the people out there and observed the traditions and picked up, uh, I'm sure, a lot of the colloquial. I can't say that word. A lot of the speech. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that they their funny talk they used to Yeah, do. <laughs> yeah. The,
1: the native down-home stuff. Now, yeah. You you mentioned Waters, and I know the story about Pine Ridge. Would you mm-hmm. tell our listeners about the transition from Waters to Pine Ridge?
3: Go for it, Hollis. Oh, who, me? <laughs> of
2: course. Yeah, you well, have, of weren't course you there? I did. <laughs> when, when on the radio program, they didn't use the term waters because they thought that that sounded more like a, a swampy place than the than the mountain community. And um, in the research, some of the, the earliest scripts that turned up uh, were from January of 1932, or a little less than a year after they had first gone on the air. And um, the person who discovered those scripts found that in the in the typed part of the scripts every time they referred to the town it was the, the name Shady S H A D Y and they said that every everywhere the word Shady appeared it was scratched out and the word Pine Ridge was written in hmm. so apparently there were there was some fiddling around with what the name of the town was going to be even after the program had been on the air for almost a year. But they came up with Pine Ridge because it sounded like a mountain community. And because they used Dick Huddleston's store, uh, after about five years, uh, Dick Huddleston and Locke and Goff and some other folks got together and decided that they would change the name of the post office at Waters to Pine Ridge so that it would conform with the radio program. Uh, it's sort of like over the years there have been different towns in North Carolina that have have been approached to change their name to Mayberry, but no one ever has, yeah. <laughs> because they, I guess they really don't need that publicity anymore. But, uh, of course, we know there was a town in New Mexico that changed its name to Truth or Consequences as part of, right. a, of a radio promotion, so it wasn't mm-hmm. unknown. But that was how Waters became Pine Ridge, and, um, of course, it, has, it's, it stayed that way ever since, right. in those early scripts, well, I was going to say, besides the name of the town being different, in those early scripts, Lum was actually a widower with, with an adult daughter and grandchildren. But apparently as it went on, they just decided that <clears throat> so few people were listening in the early days that they could just drop that and pretend that it never happened.
3: Yeah. Wouldn't it be something to find recordings of those?
2: Yeah, <laughs> Those early,
3: early shows.
2: One of, wow. the, uh, one of the Mina Star articles, when, when they were first broadcasting from KTHS in Hot Springs, uh, it said something about that Lum and Abner were going to uh, try to take in a girly show in, in Little Rock if they could do so without the knowledge of Mrs. Lum and Mrs. Abner. <laughs> so apparently in the very early days, Lum had a wife, too.
3: Oh, that's and, what happened to her. I Boy. was going to
2: say, they must have killed her off. <laughs> all, <laughs> <individually. laughs> all
3: right, grannies, I'll go if I want to. Wham.
2: But he did have an adult daughter with, with and you know, and hmm. had grandchildren, at least in 1932 he did.
1: Wow. Wow, what a change. Yeah, yeah no kidding. I mean, well, I guess, you know, you can, like, Soap operas—you just put them in a yeah. hospital bed and write them out. <laughs> yeah, now <laughs> don't that's show the up nice. the next
2: day. If you just oh. ignore it long enough, the audience will forget
3: about it. There we go. <laughs> yes. See, that's what we can do in the comic strip. We can have Squire can find this out, and he blacks blackmails Lom. See, see, that's what we'll do. Yeah,
1: yeah.
3: <laughs> I know something about you. That'll work for me. Go
1: ahead, do Squire's
2: well. again. <laughs> we always thought that it was that it was odd in the radio <laughs> programs that Squire could pull you know, these tremendous schemes, you know, and, and make Jeez. Lum and Abner come close to going bankrupt. And then for, you know, maybe for two or three weeks, you really wouldn't hear anything about Squire, and then he would be back with another scheme, and it was just like they didn't even remember. The... <laughs> no. <laughs> it was, they, would, they would fall for it again, just not, <laughs> not remembering what he had done before. Oh, yeah.
1: Old Squire. Old Squire. This is, this is great. Tell me about the origin of the jotem down store name.
3: Yeah. It's your turn. Was, well, I'm I'm gonna have to try to remember. Um, I know they had a contest to name yes. the store, uh, but actually, when they started the show, there was no store in the storyline except for Dick Huddleston's store, and Chet Locke always said that was because of the uh, the characters of the Stebbins Boys, who uh, based their Which program is- around a store. Now, was was the name of that show? Was it it wasn't the Stebbins Boys, was it? Or was yeah, that the it was,
2: uh, it was just the Stebbins Boys what and was that? it was, um, what was it that? was probably snow... the first rural comedy on radio. What uh, was that it,
3: snow, Valley, snow Village. snow yeah, village sketch? Yeah, later
2: on the same actors, uh, uh-huh. Parker Finley and Arthur Allen, they did that Snow Village mm-hmm. Sketches series. Okay. And of I, course I, I, Parker I, Finley played kept playing rural characters all the way until he died, I think. Right. Um,
3: but Chet Locke uh, said important. that's the reason uh, they they, they yeah. didn't use the store. Uh, it was
2: about two old men running a store. Yeah. So,
3: uh, so it started out with Lum as uh, was the town's uh, justice of the peace, and Abner was the town's constable, and they would meet, I guess, <laughs> occasionally at, at Dick's store. And mm-hmm. uh, somewhere, have we ever found the scripts where they actually decide to open a store, or are those lost?
2: I. Yeah, if 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 any of them exist, they're just spotty scripts, right. Uh you know that in uh, there, but
3: when they were, but spots- they did
2: have a contest to name the store. They were always having yeah. contests to name things on the program, and uh, they had even had uh, in one in one series in the early thirties, they had ended up with a with a circus elephant, and they had a contest to name the elephant. Right. So, naming the store was just another one of those contests that they had, and I yeah. think the way that Chet told it. Is that uh, there were like three or four people who sent in the, the name Jot It Down Store because they were going to run everything on credit without, you know, right. and they weren't going to accept cash. But in, they have, you know, all these people suggested Jot It Down Store, and one person suggested Jot 'em Down Store and rather than dividing the prize among three or four people, they decided, well, let's give it to this one (laughs) that sent in a unique name. (laughs) As as Chet said, if they knew that it was going to be such an important part of the show, they might have taken a little more care with it.
3: But now (laughs) we uh, – We actually came in. You actually came in contact with that winner, didn't you? Yes, Tell him we right? actually
2: found the. Win- he was very elderly, but he was living up in Ohio, and, and we actually got in tonight. touch with the the fellow um, who who came
3: up with the name Jodim Downstoker. Was, was it uh, Fioka or something? What was his name? I have forgotten now. <laughs> it's it's but, in the it's in the journals out there, but yeah. I know he sent, sent a photo of himself holding this little trophy that he won.
1: Mm-hmm. Winning <laughs> yep. the contest. Yep. How did you go about finding this person?
3: Oh,
2: uh, in his case, I think we found a newspaper article or or something uh, that that told who the winner of that contest was and of course, once again in those days there was no internet where you could look up phone numbers. I guess we just we probably called information and and found out there was still a person by that name or something.
3: I think he was delighted that we located him though.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: I, I would think so. That in in that particular era it must have been an enormous deal to have been recognized by such a popular vehicle right. as Lumen Abner. How did you guys find Lumen Abner?
4: <laughs> <I>
3: mean, <you laughs> how just, did we find mean, them?
1: I don't know I don't know how old you are, but you're younger than having sat in nineteen forty five. We're
3: younger is- than Walden.
1: <laughs> we're younger than
3: Walden. No, we're not.
1: You're younger than Walden?
3: I, don't, I think we're younger than, I know we're younger than John and Larry.
0: Yep. Well, you, guys oh, are, you guys are a tad older than I am, so you're a bridge between John and Larry and Walden. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. um, well, I know, that, I know that I first heard of it as a kid uh, in the mid-60s when my dad took me to a Lum's restaurant, and I asked him what, you know, where that name Lum came from, and he started telling me about Lum and Abner, which he'd listened to as a kid. My dad was born in 1933, and he had, uh, his whole family would listen to it, and he thought it was just an Arkansas radio show. He didn't know it was national, and he, he compared it to, um, he said, it's sort of like the Beverly Hillbillies or the Andy Griffith show, or, you know, and I was intrigued and thought, well, I'd like to hear that, and and I never thought it would be possible to hear it, but uh finally did start hearing it uh oh, let's see around I heard the first one around the late seventies at some point um and then in college, I started listening to it when one of the stations was was rebroadcasting it. Dennis, I think t- how about you? well,
2: in my case uh of course, my mom had gotten me interested in old time radio in general. Uh, it's kind of, It's kind of interesting that out of all of the the programs that she remembered being on radio when she was a girl, Lum and Abner was one she never could stand to listen to she,
4: okay. said, she
2: said she said she could not put up with those two old men you know talking all the time i think I think they reminded her too much of people that she knew but um my dad was the one who had listened to Lumon and Abner, and strangely enough, that was the only radio program that his family would listen to. Okay. So I started getting old-time radio programs on cassettes, of course, and and vinyl LPs back in those days,
4: uh-huh. and
2: um, so you know, Lum and Abner was just one of the was just one of the programs that I was uh, that I was hearing, right. uh, yeah. along with all the rest of them. But uh, as I got into the storylines, and then of course, you know, finding. Uh, Donnie and Sam. It just turned out that it was, it was, it was one that needed more research than say Jack right. Benny or Bob Hope, who were a lot better documented. Yeah.
3: You know, we we need to mention one gentleman that's no longer with us, George Lilly. Does that oh, name yeah, ring a bell? Yeah. He was uh, a fan of Lum and Abner from I guess the 30s and 40s, who uh, he was quite a character, and and he tried to promote. Um, a, a new Lumen and Abner t v series with puppets and all sorts of things, and uh he became friendly with Chetlock senior and uh, possibly norris Goff, i don't I don't know, but every year or two there would be an article that would be maybe the Associated Press would carry it and um everybody seemed to see uh one of those articles about his efforts around nineteen eighty two or so and that was actually how um Sam Brown and I got together because a friend of mine, uh, David Miller, who uh, now lives in the Dallas, Texas area, had contacted George Lilly. He, David and I were just crazy about the Lum and Abner show, and we were swapping tapes back and forth. And David, somehow through George Lilly and David Miller, Sam Brown and I connected on the phone. And, of course, you know you know the rest of the story. But, but Mr. Lilly was one of those early Lum and Abner fans that uh, – and then there were there were others too before us that we know about um in fact a lot of those fellows uh that I met in Norman Oklahoma uh with the Oklahoma Alliance of Fans uh were instrumental in actually bringing Locke and Goff together for one of their um, it may have been their very last personal appearance in the early 70s so yeah, you know, there yeah. there were other there are other major Lumen Abner fans I'm I'm proud to say and uh um and then there was um well, Joe Riddle was a big Lumen Abner fan in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of these people were part of that network that that uh, that we were stumbling into <laughs> in those early days. Yeah,
2: we we were sort
3: of getting into it after everyone else. And
2: um, one thing that was different: all of these other people that had been uh, interested in Lumen Abner, they had all known either Locke or Goff right. or both of them personally.
4: That's true, and
2: you know of course none of us ever did and we've always said that uh, you know maybe maybe it was a good thing the society didn't begin until after they were both gone because you know we just can't imagine what a devastating blow it would have been if one of them had died while the society was going hmm. on, you know, I mean, that would have been. That's true. We had a hard enough time losing the people we did lose yeah. without, yeah. you know, without dealing with that. So um,
3: either either that or they would have seen, you know, what knock-kneed idiots we was and whopped us on top of the head. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe
1: so. <laughs> into territory that I talk about every once in a while, and I'm not going to lose it, I just want to let people know that we're talking with Donnie Pitchford and Tim Hollis, who are co-founders of the National Lum and Abner Society. Donnie is also the creator of the Lum and Abner comic strip. And he does a lot of the voices. Tim jumps in once in a while. I I thought it was more often than you're owning up to here. Uh, <laughs> because the audio is also available at their website at LumAndAbnerSociety.org. And just a reminder, we're not live. This is a pre-recorded interview. So I'm very no
4: sorry. No, we're sorry. I'm really
1: sorry. We're not able my to pulse. take calls. <laughs> okay, now here's here's my tickling on the edge. You've talked a couple of times about losing so many people who were intimately involved in radio or who knew the people who were involved in radio. You are another generation. How do we cultivate in the upcoming generations a love for old-time radio and characters like Lum and Abner?
3: Hmm. I sure hope we can do that. Yeah, I know I think the internet has a
2: lot to do with it and oh. also uh of course satellite radio like the uh the the, the old time radio channel on on XM radio right. uh right. I understand from their uh announcers that there are a lot of young people who have discovered radio through that and right. uh, so you know it's one of those things that they just have to be
3: exposed yeah. to it I used to force it on my classes for, <laughs> for 25 years. <laughs> force force fit it to them. <laughs> uh, when uh, when I taught, uh, I always had units on radio history at the beginning of every school year, and some of those guys picked up on it. In fact, um, a couple of the uh, there were th- three of the uh, characters we didn't mention who show up uh, sometimes in the audio. In fact, one guy showed up in the strip. Um, I'll mention these guys. There were a couple of kids in the first Lumb and Abner movie um named uh, Jimmy in Washington and I I put those characters in the comic strip and a couple of my former students have provided the voices and then there's the uh, bully snake hogan who uh is actually a Chet Lock character but uh one of my former students named Jackson Herod has uh, come along and and voiced that character uh for me as well so you know they're of of another generation and they've been exposed to old time radio and I know uh well you've got some listeners um uh, Robert Garrison who uh I know is is very uh devoted to Yesterday USA mm-hmm. who is um uh I I would call him a young a younger generation person I think he's uh, I'm not going to mention his age okay but anyway he's younger than we are <laughs>
1: a uh, a young man when we're yeah. talking in terms of old-time radio he's a oh,
0: young yes, man. you're the, right well i mean we have listeners i know that calling the show in their 20s in their early 20s so, so you,
3: that's that's what we mean yeah yeah, yeah. and we sure mm-hmm. hope so. we hope that and i know that um that's another reason for the audio version is is i know that the the blind community loves old-time radio and that's another reason that i wanted to keep uh that aspect of the project alive, and, and I just hope that somehow through the the comic strips, the books, the the audio, that somehow, if it can reach enough people and they'll find something humorous about it, perhaps they will take a uh, the next step and say, "Well, I'm going to try some of those old shows. I'm going to see what yeah. those are about." So,
2: and of course, we have to remember too that uh, a lot of a lot of people who have been old time radio fans, they have children, they have grandchildren, right. so they're going to introduce it to them, and uh, and it may uh you know it may it may catch on with, that way so yeah. I, <laughs> uh, you know
3: a good example is the McMurrin family who who came yeah. to many of our conventions and anytime now uh if if I can't if I'm looking for a specific reference or a specific program all I have to do is go online and ask Janet you know can you tell me what date was that program and Bang! She's got it even before yeah. Tim can get it. I'll ask Tim, and she'll have it before you know. Tim will write the next day. Well, I think that's on uh, February. No, she's already yeah. told me. So I mean, because I have to look it up. Yeah, I do too. And that's my problem. And I, I can't find half the shows I've got <laughs> they're, because they're they're on reels or transcription discs or cassettes or uh, you know everything but wire. I think.
2: <laughs> and George Lilly had that. So anyway, <laughs> exactly. You had, yeah.
1: you had all your bases covered. How far ahead do you work on the strip, Donnie?
3: I like to tell people about five about 30
2: minutes. minutes ahead, isn't
1: it? <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, I know that you had uh, Mike Curtis on one time, and he was talking about how he was six months ahead or he wrote some of it a year ahead, and I think I said 30 minutes or whatever. But um, I, I, I'm, I'm doing well if I can keep a week or two weeks ahead. But since it's not syndicated by major syndicate, you know they they usually have a requirement. Some sometimes it's four weeks, sometimes it's six weeks, or nine weeks even. But um, I get as far ahead as I can when I can because I have other other jobs that I have to work on and other sure. uh, projects. So, but exactly. you know it, it's 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 strictly a weekly. I, one guy was complaining one time and said, "Why don't you do a daily strip so it doesn't take so long to tell a story?"
2: and then after
3: you've th- <laughs> choked him to death. <laughs> I was, I don't have to, you, you know what it takes to do a daily strip? Uh, my friend, uh, High Eisman, who's been a cartoonist since uh, the 40s, he, said he calls daily strips man killers. He says, you know, if, <laughs> it's just it, it's a tremendous amount of work. So uh, if I can keep the, the, the weekly Sunday strip going, I'm doing pretty well.
1: I hate to ask this of a writer. How do you create the storylines? Where do they come from?
3: Well, a, a few of them have come from the uh, actual scripts. Um, I did. Uh, I adapted some of the episodes where Lum ran for president from
1: nineteen thirty-six. Oh, I love that that episode. And oh
3: gosh, I'm glad. Glad you like that one. And then the one where oh,
1: yeah.
3: where Lum wanted to become a, a fighter uh, was taken from nineteen thirty-six. And some of them are, well, one of them was, a uh, one of the stories was adapted from one of our convention uh, scripts. Yeah. where yeah. tried to become a detective, and they, we had a little murder mystery going on. And um, some of them I just think of, um, of course, the thing with Mina about the festival just basically wrote itself. Because, yeah. uh, you know, we knew we were going there, and I thought, well, now what kind of situations can we put Lum and Abner in or where can they go or who can they see? And you know, that that was pretty simple to put together. One um,
2: thing that we one thing that we've actually discovered over the years and of course it's different when uh, you know, when you're working by yourself like Donnie is with the comic strip, but we you know, having having listened to the shows and having worked with the characters for so long we discovered that it really wasn't that difficult to just put Lum and Abner into any kind of situation, and we right. would know what they would do, or we would right. know what would happen. You know, I mean, we could come up with some of the most preposterous things, like what if Lum and Abner went to Chattanooga to see Rock City? You know, we, I mean, <laughs> we knew how they would react to everything. Yeah. So, um it's uh, With the comic strip, I'm sure that it's sort of the same thing. You just you start with a situation right. and then just sort yeah. of let Lum and Abner ride it.
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah they sometimes have such that's what well-defined uh... and strong characters that I can understand that you tap in and say, oh, man, Lum, Lum would say this or Abner would do that. Mm-hmm.
3: And all that does is really, to me, that, that points to the strengths of, uh, of Locke and Goff as well as Roswell Rogers, um, mm-hmm. you know, for... for the incredible work they did, um, and you know the, the characters are very rich. Of I'm course, Locke and Goff you. wrote; they wrote their
2: own scripts for years and years. But what is ironic is that the the vast majority of the uh, the programs. That got people interested in Lemon Abner by hearing them in syndication are actually not the the programs that Locke and Goff wrote at all. They're the ones that Roz Rogers wrote, Right. Uh, and he had assistance from time to time as well. Right. But uh, basically, there are there are relatively few of the Locke and Goff programs that are available to hear.
0: So the script you guys printed in the in the journal were they from Rogers or were they did they chat? Did they have some? How, how have you what? guys tracked down the scripts the, over the
3: years? The ones that well, the ones that we reprinted in book form were were Lock and Golf scripts. Yeah,
2: yeah, because they were all from the thirties.
3: And the reason we did that is because the recordings didn't exist.
2: Mm-hmm. But
3: uh, however, sometimes you, uh, you you do have to realize that sometimes they recycled some older stories. Um, oh yeah, like yeah. the when they opened the movie theater, they reused that in in the forties. And uh, oh, I know there were other ones. They used part of the. Uh, where the the mine caves in and they're trapped in the silver mine or whatever that was Mm -hmm. that was from 1936 originally and i know there something about that hotel mystery wasn't that a recycled one
2: i think it It seems like it seems like that Roz maybe was the one that mentioned that uh because he couldn't stay on the job 365 days a year he had to have a vacation so sometimes that's when they would pull out the old scripts when he just had to get away for a little while
3: and then yeah. he wrote a couple of the uh, of the screenplays for the films as well. Yeah. So, yeah.
2: you know, he was he was sidetracked. I did not know that.
3: Yeah, let's see. What was it, Tim? Uh, two weeks to live, and two weeks
2: to live. And so this is Washington, yeah. I think, are the two that he
3: wrote. Right, right. I think you're right there. And then the uh great
4: fun to watch.
3: The Bashful Bachelor was largely based on radio scripts that Locke mm-hmm. and Goff had written. So
2: yeah. Yeah, that's why they got screen credit for original story on that one, right. because it was based on the radio script.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. How many times have you listened to the series of shows that are available? Hmm.
2: I don't really know. I know that both of us, there are parts we've heard more often than other right. parts. <laughs> right. I, really, I really couldn't say.
3: I'm, I'm hearing some now that I will remember bits and pieces of. But then there were entire shows that I think I don't remember this at all. <laughs> uh, I actually listened to one last night that uh, I, I hadn't laughed as hard. I don't think at, at a Lumen Abner show as Tim. Do you remember the one? Uh, I'm copying some that actually uh, came from Tim. That uh, yeah, we're
2: trying to restore some of them that were right. about to deteriorate on us.
3: And there's one, the one where they're trying. They're in Los Angeles and they're trying to get back to Pine Ridge and they're they're helping this guy move a trunk.
2: Oh, yeah. They I think Brandon Six Bushman is the guy that with the Oh, trunk.
3: is that Bushman? Yeah. I think uh, it's Bushman. They yeah. drop it on uh, Abner's foot, and he's going, set it up, set it up, set it up, yeah. set it up, set it up, set it up. And they at went, one point, Chant gets sickled. <laughs> oh, yeah. Locked, he's cracking up laughing at, yeah. at Abner. And uh, I remember that one, um, actually hearing that uh, when I was working for a printing company, and uh, – it was at lunchtime, and we would turn the radio on, and I, I can remember the lady I work with, uh, you know, just almost choking on her lunch over that yeah. one. It was so funny.
2: <laughs> I think the punchline at the at the end is that they're going to share a ride with this guy, but he thought that they had a car, and, and they thought that he had a car. Yeah,
3: exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I'd forgotten most now of them. That was
1: a serial of sorts because right. stories ran into each other.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Tell me. I'll ask for three from each of you. Your favorite serial sequence.
2: Well, we'd probably pick about the same ones. You go first. <laughs> um,
3: I, I, I always say that my all-time favorite was the uh, storyline about Diogenes Smith.
2: Oh, yeah, I think no. I I think I would agree with that. Yeah, Wonderful that, world. Yeah. Wonderful
1: world, Yes. <laughs>
3: That was the first one I ever heard, and I got in on it, and and it was all fresh and new, and I didn't know for sure who the characters were, and it just, you know, after a few episodes, it swept me along. I know that's one of my favorites. Um, Gosh, uh, I'd have to do some thinking on the other (laughs) two others.
2: The first of the the storylines that I ever heard was that um, that three months of, uh, of... Postum shows from the from January, February, and March of 1940. That was the, that was the first time that I had heard a continuity instead of just isolated episodes, and so I would say that that string of which was there were probably four or five different storylines in that three-month period. But I would say that would be my favorite simply because that was where I where the whole thing started for me. Right. Mm -hmm.
3: I know I like the uh, a lot of that. 1941-42 1941-42 era i really liked the uh, when mousy gray was introduced and uh when he became a uh, for a time a major character uh the whole series uh about the phantom author most yeah. of it comes from that that same early period i think that's just a kind of a golden period in my mind you know <laughs> the the golden words of wisdom of diogenes smith but all of that sort of connected but um uh, that was just a special time for me, and uh, those I think those those programs are are among my favorites.
2: And of course, sometimes, like um, of course, we had heard the nineteen fifties programs uh, where Lum and Abner had their own radio station, the VPR, the Voice of Pine Ridge. At that at the time, we first heard those. We didn't know that that was a storyline they had done in nineteen forty seven right, originally. Yeah. And when I finally heard the nineteen forty seven version, it was so much funnier than the fifties version hmm. <laughs> because they were doing they were doing so many parodies of other radio programs right. and so right. forth. It was it was almost like Stan Freeberg had started riding Lemon Habner for a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he was by the way, Freeberg was one of the guests that we very much wanted to have hmm. in Mina, but never right. we never were able to get him.
1: <laughs> oh you know, gosh. That is funny. You mentioned uh, Lum for president, mm-hmm. I guess, I, and when they, when they had president of the store, was it not Lum and Abner who were competing with each other, each one of them wanted to be president of the store, and they opened it up to right.
3: both? I think that happened a couple of times, didn't it, Yeah, too? I
1: think
2: so, but uh, yeah. Lum was actually running for president of the United States in mm-hmm. 1936 in that election year.
3: Yeah, on the Republican ticket. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't remember hearing that series. I'm going to have to go look. No, it doesn't exist. Or... <laughs> the only place it, it doesn't exists, indeed, except oh, in that, it, well, it exists in the comics strip. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm released from responsibility. Yeah. I'm vindicated here. Yeah, you will yeah, just We're with to, Pitchford and Tim Hollis, who are co-founders of the National Lum and Abner Society, and you can find them at Lum and Abner Society. Oh no. Matt, that's right. That's right. That's correct. Okay, yes. org. Yes. Okay. This is good. Now tell me, and I can't think of two people better to ask, what makes this show so endearing and so enduring?
2: Well, I think the fact that it was that it was a continuous serial. I mean, we all know uh, in, in radio days and right up to the present day, how people have gotten so engaged with soap operas, and there's just something about hearing characters that you enjoy hearing and, and doing it day by day and a story developing that way. Uh, not that there was anything wrong with the with the Jack Benny mm. style of radio program, but that was where you were actually listening to a radio program, <laughs> you know, rather than visiting with characters right. that you knew. Uh Lumb and Abner was a little different from um even from the the soap operas in that generally it unfolded in real time uh like there were twenty four hours would elapse between each episode uh, as a rule you know right. whereas in a program like um oh like john's other uh, other family or <laughs> whatever uh you know a conversation <laughs> might stretch over an entire week. Uh, occasionally uh-huh. on XM, mm-hmm. they will they will play episodes of Ma Perkins, and it's always amazing right. that they'll play like five episodes in a row. And when it's over, it's the same conversation that started five <laughs> episodes <laughs> earlier. When people made fun of soap operas, yeah. that was that was the pace that they were actually yeah. making fun of. But yeah. with Lum and Abner, there would be occasions when the when the scene would shift in the middle of a program. But generally. Right. It was like listening to 15 right. minutes of live, 24 hours apart.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes it would be daytime, sometimes it would be at night. But it, yeah. yeah, but for the most part, it was the next day, or if something might happen, there might be a cliffhanger on a Thursday or a Friday, depending on their their broadcasting schedule, and and it would be Monday, and the announcer would say, "Well, last Friday, such and such happened, and over the yeah. weekend, this happened, and now we join them." So, yeah, um, there's
2: some. Um that's one way that it was always easy when we were cataloging the programs to tell when an episode was missing. If they right. referred to something that happened yesterday and it wasn't in the previous episode, yeah, we knew we, we were would know of- there was a program <laughs> missing there. Yeah. yeah,
3: I think too that um, to me, the characters sound like members of the family because uh, my dad's family all came from northern Arkansas. And my mother's family were from the general area of East Texas. And, uh, the, you know, the speech patterns are so similar. And, um, you know, I had great uncles that would have been right right at home as characters on Lum and Abner, you know, just because that. that was the way they spoke. And some of the expressions they would use were either the same or very similar. Um, so to me, it's just like, you know, it's like going to a family reunion in some ways. And I think a, a lot of people even though some of the characters are somewhat exaggerated, um, they're just very familiar characters to people from the southern part of the country. And I think, too, the people from other parts of the country would, would hear the accents and the dialect and just think it was charming, you know, or mm-hmm. interesting or funny. And um, um, it's just something that, you know, I, I feel like I grew up with it, more or less.
2: Yeah. I didn't necessarily have the uh, the... the Family connection with it because I guess that uh, well of course I've there were practically no living members of my family when I was growing up so if any of them were like that I never knew them they were before my time but my dad probably it reminded him of people from from the neighborhood where he right. grew up because even when my dad was a boy he actually worked uh, at a at a general store. Uh, for an old fellow whose whose name could have come from Lemon Abner, the old the old store owner's name was Doc Sellers,
4: yeah.
2: and um, uh-huh. and my dad said that Doc Sellers would go around <laughs> the store during the day saying "I doggies" and things like that. But, <laughs> but he sort of assumed that the fellow was doing that because he was listening to Lemon and Abner, and mm-hmm. not because yeah. you know it was part of his own personality, but uh anyway but i think that uh, you know so my dad he had some personal relation right. <laughs> personal experience with that kind of thing
3: and uh, my uh, grandparents my mother's parents uh, ran a general store for several ah. years when she was growing up and uh, i know one of the first times uh, there's a a wonderful place in northern arkansas called mountain village
4: 1890
3: mm-hmm. and uh it's just like to me it's like walking around pine ridge And the general store and the schoolhouse in that village were actually taken from my dad's boyhood uh, home community. So when we visited there when I was a kid... Yeah, that's the first thing my dad said is, you know, yeah, this is just like the store in that show, Lum and Abner, I used to listen to. <laughs> and uh, coincidentally, Chet Locke and uh, Dick Huddleston were present when the, that village was uh, for
2: the grand opening, well, yeah.
3: right? The grand opening when it was dedicated. And that, so. that
2: kind of brings up the subject that the Pine Ridge of the radio program was always a lot larger than the, than the Pine Ridge in real life was <laughs> with a lot more variety of businesses and, and things like that going on. Right. So Oh. Uh, and the uh I mean the real Pine Ridge was sort of a wide spot in the road, I guess right. you would say.
3: And they they did have a schoolhouse uh and they had mm-hmm. a, a, a I believe a livery stable or a blacksmith shop. Yep, they had yep. more at the time than exists now. Yeah. But uh it was uh, you know one at one of our first conventions, I remember a gentleman who probably at the time was in his 70s. And I remember him walking into the uh, the Dick Huddleston store, which is now called Lumen Abner Jotem Down Store, and then beside that is the Lumen Abner Museum. But I remember him coming back out with tears in his eyes, and saying, "It just said it. It was just so real. It was just so real." He <laughs> said, "When when I used to hear the show, he said I, I just thought it was real, you know. He it never dawned on him that it was a radio show. You know, he he was yeah. young. I guess he was a kid and uh, or a young person and When he listened to it, he to him it was just a slice of reality. So,
2: (laughs) well, and apparently a lot of people felt that way because when they went to the um, when they went to the thirty minute the weekly uh, you know the weekly sitcom program in front of an audience, Roz Rogers said that they got letters from people wanting to know who are all those people laughing in the Jotem Down Store because people thought it was really being broadcast from a little store somewhere and not on a stage in in Hollywood.
1: they really put themselves into the role. One of the things I wanted to ask both of you as writers, Donnie, you create these characters in pictures for us, and Tim, you are a writer as, as a profession. The two characters were so, um, they, they fit together so perfectly. It was like tongue and groove. Lum, had the grand ideas. He was the dreamer and would frequently say something that implied he thought Abner was a little backwards in his thinking because he <laughs> couldn't keep up with it. And in the end, Abner would be the one who had the common sense to recognize that this grand plan was not going to operate. Now, that's not an easy thing to achieve when you've got two people writing a script coming together how did they accomplish that
2: (laughs) i guess you'd have to ask them
3: (laughs) yeah i wish we could
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) but i'm sure the characters developed uh you know over trial and error as they because the the scripts as we know from reading them over the years they changed and developed the early ones that 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 we were talking about from 1932, the earliest ones that someone developed. Um, even though it was always a comedy program, uh, in those in those 1932 scripts, they're they're much darker than mm-hmm. than we think of later on. Like there's uh, there's an extended uh, series where Abner and not. Not Snake Hogan, but the character who preceded Snake Hogan, a character they called Oscar Fields, I believe it is.
3: I think that's Uh, right. I mean
2: Oscar Fields is actually trying to kill Abner. And you know and Abner's trying to hide from him. So it would you know, I think they were probably basing that on the real life they had observed in those mountains up there in in Arkansas.
3: Could be and and too, you have to remember that uh, Amos and Andy was a big influence. Yeah, and very, er- very big. The early Amos and Andy shows would have very serious moments in them. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So um, I'm sure that they that they worked with the characters and just d- discovered what seemed to be the best for them. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And you know,
2: in some cases, it may be that. Uh, uh, a lot of their own personalities went into that because Could even be. in, yeah. even in real life, Chet was usually the one who came up with, with new projects for them to do. Could <laughs> and, be, yeah. You know, Tuffy would go along sometimes reluctantly, sometimes not, but, yeah. uh
1: uh-huh.
2: you know, so I think that, you know, some of that probably came into it as well.
1: It, it sure sounds like it. Of all the characters you have worked with, which are your two favorites?
3: Hmm. Um, I you know I tend to um, I like Squire Skimp quite a bit because he's so colorful uh, yeah. and 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 devious. But it's like um, it's like Chet and Tuffy in interviews and Roz Rogers would say you couldn't have him in every show. Like Tim said, he would have to vanish after yeah. after each scheme to give yeah. people time to forget. But I mean. Uh, he, He's always an enjoyable character. I always like, um, he wasn't a major character through the entire series, but I always got a kick out of Mousy Gray. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just, um, he just added a, a little dash of oddball color to the show. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Mousy Gray was, he was almost like a Green Acres character, and he yeah. was sort of surreal. <laughs> yeah. I think. Well.
3: Th- I think we found out he was a creation of Roz, uh, Roz Rogers, wasn't he, Tim?
2: Yeah, yeah. Or at least, uh, at least Roz was the one who who brought him into the form that people right. do. Because I, I mean, Roz wrote him as pretty much Cedric's age. You know, you know, maybe a, uh, in his around twenty years old or something like that. But when he first appeared in a in a Lock and Golf script didn't they say that he'd been the night watchman for 30 years or something like that yeah, and something, was, or
3: 18 i think it was 18 years or something yeah he yeah, was there was an was,
2: indication that he was an older right an older guy right. <laughs> when he first began but uh and but he was he some, changed the voice a little bit too as it went yeah, along
3: yeah yeah but uh yeah, what about Patrick. yours what about yours uh tim did you did you mention your favorite? I mean,
2: like in working with the scripts that we wrote for the convention, Cedric was always a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, because you could um we had we had a lot of fun with him and so did Locke and Goff. They would I sure. mean generally he was the dumb character, but sometimes he would catch on to things before Lum and Abner would. Right. And uh, you know, so we had we had a lot of fun working with him and then of course Ben Withers who came along later on.
4: Yeah. Oh yeah.
2: Uh, it was it was always fun to write for him because he was uh you could you could put any nutty thing in there with yeah. Him. Yeah. we had we had a couple of the scripts that were based on our guests being outsiders who came into town and by the time they had encountered all of these characters they would just leave screaming you know?
3: yeah frank brazee frank brazee did that yeah
2: yeah and kathy and kathy lee crosby yeah. we had we used that with her you know that uh she was, she was looking for stories to revive the That's Incredible TV show, and after she met all these people in Pine Ridge, she said nobody would believe any of this. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, you know, we had a, um, had a character in the comic strip a few months ago uh, who was a hero. He actually was the hero of the story who had an unusual name, Larry John Walden.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> did you hear him? Uh, or did I you, never did know you anybody about that name. I thing.
1: knew he was there, and I didn't hear him.
3: Oh my gosh! Well, you know, uh, Larry, know. Larry did the voice. I
1: know.
3: Well, that's still on the. Uh, that's still on the website. So uh, that oh, it was is.
1: okay. Yeah,
3: that was one. <laughs> Get it that, before it
2: disappears.
3: Yeah. <laughs> that was,
1: once again I'm vindicated. Thank you.
3: Yeah. That's uh, the <laughs> name You're of that. S- for me. The name of that series is The Whisper, and it's it's a takeoff on all of the old radio shows like The Whistler and The Mysterious Traveler and. Um those sorts of shows, you know, the mysterious uh shows with (laughs) narrator.
2: Uncle Donnie was very surprised after he had started that series to discover that there was a radio program called The Whisperer that <laughs> was yeah. it was very much a it was very much a copy of The Shadow
3: Whisperer. But, uh, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. So yeah. At least I, <laughs> I, yeah, at least I I was one syllable less. So Yeah.
1: <laughs> but uh, oh, it's a tasteful show. I'm sure yours was a lot more but, uh, tasteful than his. That show gives me the creeps the way that guy used his voice. And that's oh, what man. You know, yeah. Can you imagine waking up to that in the morning? Was, oh, <laughs> no! I don't think so. Yeah.
3: That was the idea. The idea behind uh, behind this was Lum and Abner were listening to this this scary radio show, and it, it you know uh, trying to pretend it didn't frighten them. And uh, Lum starts hearing an actual voice that's haunting him that he can't uh, can't figure out where it's coming from. So, but yeah, the hero is uh, is a gentleman. Uh, was a tribute to. Uh, John, Larry, and Walden.
2: Walden? I think there was a pond that was named after Walden, too, wasn't it? I think I remember (laughs) studying that in literature in high school.
3: I don't know about that. Hmm. Now, you're thinking of that that other hillbilly show, The Waldens. That's
2: it, yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah, something in the mountains up there. They lived on Walden's Mountain. Yeah, that's it.
1: (laughs) Oh, yes, okay, all right. I got it now. All right. We could talk about Luman Abner until next week.
3: And we already have, uh,
1: haven't we? Uh, well, just about. It, it, i probably tripped into your dinner times.
3: I think we're going to be talking about it all the way through August, from what I understand.
1: <laughs> we are, so we're going to be having you back and back and back and back. We've been talking with Donnie Pitchford For more, and Jim more, more. Hollis. Who Back. are the co-founders, or two of the three co-founders of the Lumen Abner Society, the National Lumen Abner Society? I want you to do a wrap-up for me. What would you like people who have no idea what Lumen Abner is all about? What would you should, tell them to? Should we
3: help do it in character? maybe?
1: the story. <gasps> yes. Should we do that. Huh? Yes.
3: Abner. <laughs> well, what is, it,
2: Abner, uh, what you is know, that woman that's...
3: talking about?
2: I don't know. That, that Patricia lady, though, I'm kind of you know in love with her, you know. I think now, she's going I to I be the next Miss Edwards.
3: <laughs> I'm going to tell <laughs> Evelina. I saw Evelina over at the schoolhouse. She's coming home to teach school this fall. I'm going to go tell her right now. You can't yeah, do well, that.
2: During, su- during the summer, uh, Patricia and me, we've been uh, kind of sparking each other. I took her to the movies the other night, you know, we... We've seen, this, uh, we've oh, seen this movie about this uh, feller that turned himself into an ain't. Oh, that was a, that was a kind of a funny story there.
3: I've seen one where he turned himself into an uncle.
2: Yeah, well, let's see. Let's see, there was that feller Jenner. He went from being an uncle to being an ain't. So anyway. Oh, my uh,
3: goodness, it. I hear he's one of them Jenner benders.
2: <laughs> yeah, I saw a feller bending... Steel rods at the circus the other day, but anyway, uh-huh. what, what, what was it we were supposed to be talking about anyway? I'm done off the tracks.
3: Well, um, we're I talking think,
1: uh, about uh, how to get people interested enough to want to check out Lemon Abner. Well, they don't listen
2: to us for the first time.
3: <laughs> no, I, I think we just blew that one.
1: <laughs> no, I think you did a great job because folks, I think we if scared them have off. Not heard Lemon Abner. <laughs> You've just heard them, and um, gosh, you've just I'm heard an
2: unreasonable sorry. facsimile album. Yes,
1: we have, we have heard a facsimile, yes, and and gosh, you guys do such a great job. What should I have asked you that I didn't?
3: <laughs> I can't think of a thing <laughs> um, When
2: we were going to say good night, I don't
3: know <laughs> I don't know what the, yeah: <laughs> Well, basically, we just I think everything we've done over the years has been to try to uh, just get people interested in what we think is a great old-time radio show. You know, it's G-rated, it's uh, family entertainment, and um, it's part of Americana that I hope uh, we can keep alive for many more years.
1: You're doing a fabulous job. org, And you can find out all about Lumen Abner, what's going on? And take a look at the July and August 1984 <laughs> newsletter that came out, the John and Down Journal. And that is that great.
2: the only one that's? Is that the only one that's on the
1: website? <laughs> um, I
2: know some of our articles are on there. Yeah. From that's from the, from the only others.
3: actual. Yeah, it's the only actual one. I just haven't had time to do any. Yeah, I thought I would start and 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 stay 30 years. You know, yeah, <laughs> with every 30th anniversary, but it just didn't work out. <laughs> I've been too busy. Well, you can
1: catch up. Been i been too mean, busy you know, this is something comic Well, yeah. you could do a weekday, sh- uh, a, a weekday comic strip, right?
3: Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> you can do
1: that. Well, guys, I am finished with my questions, if you can believe that, because truly I could keep you here until breakfast. You <laughs> are just so much fun to talk with. And I hope you'll be able to come back and join us again.
3: I'm sure we can at some point. I'm
2: as close as your telephone. By the way, uh, let me give you a little bit of trivia. You know the uh, the phone number that you called to, to get me on the phone for this program?
1: Yes. Walden called it,
2: yeah. Okay. Well, uh, in a couple of months, it will be 50 years that I've had the same phone number. So oh, my I, God. I just thought I would throw that in there.
3: <laughs> How many times? Uh, is it three rings or two longs and a short? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh-huh. Believe it or not, when this house was when when we first built this house, we were on a party line, yeah. but it was just with the, with my grandmother next door. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, the, so I'm I'm coming up on fifty years of having the same phone number.
1: The same phone number. I don't know how you did it. They keep changing the area codes. He just codes. didn't, move. He just didn't
3: the, move.
2: Yeah, I was going to yeah. say it's the same house.
1: <laughs> yeah. the same telephone. Same house, but, but you know they they come in with new area codes. I I moved to Florida. And this is my third area code. Wow! I know, I know. Well, Alabama's so,
2: area codes have—they have, they have uh, changed over the years, but it just so happens I'm in the part of the state where it stayed the same.
1: <laughs> so you—you you didn't have an influx, you know, just a, an overpopulation. That
2: I guess would make not. Want
1: to break it up? That's great. See what you did, Tim. Years, We have to send you an anniversary card.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Happy anniversary to my
3: house.
1: to your house and your phone number what he doesn't want to admit is
3: the rest of the town moved away from him that's right
1: (laughs) funny well both of you go enjoy your dinner and thank you so much for spending so much time with us tonight thank you i I, I really apologize we've overshot the runway on our time targets but you're just such wonderful guests thank (laughs) you so much for being with us
2: well, okay, oh, call thanks. us and we'll do part two or part three or whatever part we're up to by this yeah. time.
1: Okay, Well, you're only up to part two now. So. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll cultivate my next list of questions for you. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the week.
2: Thank you. You too. Bye bye. Bye
3: now.
1: Goodbye.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I guess we're off the air. I guess we are.
1: <laughs> I, I don't know. I think Wake we lost well all of it. Walden, wake
3: up! <laughs> wake up, Walden!
0: I up. I was just trying to save the file.
2: Okay. <laughs> that sounds like the name of a morning
3: radio show. Wake <laughs> up, Walden! Wake yeah. up, Walden.
1: yeah. <laughs> this is good. This is good. Sometimes he falls over uh, and just disappears on
3: us. Walden, can you Dropbox or can someone Dropbox me a, a direct recording of this? You Maybe. bet, Donnie. You okay. You bet. And then whatever whatever the other segments are, if you don't mind. Uh, because I've got some folks that